Hello and welcome to History of Asia. Thanks to all of you who support the show by posting nice reviews and comments on podcast sites and social media. For those of you tuning in for the first time, if there is one thing you might want to know, it's that here at History of Asia, we don't discuss history chronologically. On the contrary, each episode we travel a little further back in time. Why is that? Well, the short answer is that I believe this helps clarify why the story at hand still matters. After all, you cannot understand how a certain event in the past has led up to the present without knowing what happens after, can you? Now, as we go further back in time, you encounter fewer and fewer things that actually still matter. So I don't even try to give equal attention to each period. Instead, I try to limit myself to discussing events or processes that still leave important traces behind. And the further back we go, the more these residues have to do with culture. Laws get overturned, languages disappear, rulers are forgotten, but culture has a way of sticking around, at least in mutated form. Events in the past can help explain why cultures are a certain way, although I freely admit these explanations are more speculative than when you talk about how a war started, for example. Case in point, in a previous episode, we suggested that the reason why modern innovations have often been unwelcome in Arabia may have something to do with the way modernization was first introduced there. It was forced upon them by outside intruders, who were in essence trying to usurp the authority of tribal and religious leaders. So small wonder that these saw and presented them as uh, alien, decadent or sinful. And the modernizers ended up failing in their endeavors, by the way. So it would not be crazy then to expect this negative view of modernization to stick around. After all, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. Now, this is not the whole story. In an upcoming episode, we will see that there are still other reasons why Arabians may have been predisposed to idealize the ways of the past. Today, we will focus on a particular example of this. Well, let's call it intrusive modernization. It's a topic that I personally find endlessly fascinating, but that is also highly controversial. I'm talking about the tradition of slavery. Now, I feel I'm entering a minefield with this topic. Gulf countries face harsh criticism today for their particular handling of labor relations. Qatar came into the crosshairs of global public opinion lately when it merged that schools of laborers died on building sites during preparations for the World Cup. All the rich Gulf countries depend on immigrants, who are often treated little better than slaves. They are dependent on their employer, these uh, migrants, and in case of a disagreement with him, they have no legal recourse. I don't think anybody seriously denies this. Search the internet for about 10 seconds and you can find examples. What is controversial is not so much the bare facts, but the right of Westerners to complain about them. Gulf states see such critique as patronizing and hypocritical. As I discussed in the first episode, they may even have a point. For there is a sense in which the West depends on similar exploitation. It just chooses to outsource it and then washes its hands in innocence. And Arabians can of course easily find examples of European exploitation, so they might well say, who are you to lecture us? Well, although I do of course want laborers to be treated well, I don't mean to preach or to judge either, but what I think I can do is help understand why labor rights in the Gulf are what they are. 
Still, it's easy to see how this too can be provocative. If you're not careful, you end up reinforcing harmful stereotypes. And if there's one thing I want to avoid, it is that. Then again, if something is controversial, that is also a sign it's relevant. Ignoring such themes means surrendering them to the demagogues. For let's not kid ourselves, since the problematic position of migrant workers in Arabia is common knowledge, it's inevitable that people will try to explain it. And even if you're an Arabian eager to defend your country's policy, what type of explanation would you prefer outsiders to embrace? That this phenomenon is somehow intrinsically part of Arabian nature? Or that it is the result of historical processes and therefore changeable? Well, I would prefer the latter, and not in the least because that is what the evidence points to. One important warning, though, in the middle of the Greek debt crisis, I heard an economist say that the problem lay with culture. And he said, you cannot change culture. That's why it's culture. Now, that I don't believe. Values and norms are hard to change beyond adolescence, but it can be done. I get the impression Arabian attitudes on the matter are changing as we speak. And as we shall see today, they've changed a lot before as well. Although I apologize in, in advance, to anyone who might feel offended, I hope you'll agree that this approach is superior to all the all too prevalent idea that this is somehow intrinsic to Arabian nature or to Islam for that matter. That brings me to another reason why this topic is divisive. Islam is sometimes presented as part of the explanation, not in the least by some slave owners themselves. Groups like Boko Haram or ISIL point to Quranic passages as excuses to enslave people. And as we shall see, so have Arabian rulers who didn't want to abolish slavery in the past. Islamophobes see this as confirmation that the Quran approves of enslaving people, but that is neither fair nor accurate. Of course, the Quran talks about slavery, so does the Bible. The reason is simple. When these books were written, slavery was a part of daily life. And any religion that forbade slavery outright would probably not be super popular. Capturing slaves was probably a motif for many who participated in the early Muslim conquests. But this was always the case in warfare in those days. There was nothing typically Islamic about that. Also, there is a difference between what a holy book says and what people do in its name. Experts say that Islamic texts encourage believers to free their slaves or at least to treat them well. Muhammad himself lived up to that. Also note that Islam stresses the, the equality of all believers before God, slaves not excluded. Compared to the common practices in Arabia at the time, the Islamic rules on the matter were clearly an improvement. Masters were encouraged to convert their slaves, which facilitated their integration and social mobility. That compares positively to, say, slaves in modern America who were treated like animals and had almost no chance of ever gaining their freedom. Some people claim that treating a slave well and offering the prospect of manumission that actually makes slaves accept their fate and thereby makes the institution of slavery durable. But there is a perverse logic to this critique, I think. It's a bit like saying, if you're a dictator, you'd better do a lot of evil stuff so that people will be more inclined to rise up against tyranny. I see little evidence that it often works that way. What I take away from all this is that although the Quran does not justify slavery, it has wrongly been used for that purpose. But other religions have been misused in that way too. 
Christians have used religion as grounds for deciding which people were slave material. Even many clerics have seen no harm in keeping slaves. Jesus never said that that was okay. Not unlike the Quran, the New Testament underlines that slaves are equal to others before God and encourages masters to treat them well and free them. And still, people have been enslaved in the name of both religions. However, religion is just one of many pretexts for uh, robbing people of their freedom. The oldest was no doubt war. Enslaving a defeated foe was considered a lenient alternative to chopping his head off. I can even imagine the initiative coming from the victim. For so long as he offered up his labor, his captor had a reason for keeping him alive. You see how convincing this rationale can be? It's mutually beneficial. Why would you want to do away with it, right? Except that since ancient times, human spoils of war have been among the prime reasons for waging war in the first place. And this has been the case all over the globe. Almost just as rampant throughout history, is debt slavery. If you owe someone a debt you cannot repay, you could often offer yourself up or your children to make up for it. Proponents of that would say, if you can't pay the bill, it's only fair that you do the dishes, right? Proponents of debt slavery often explain that, like with war captives, the alternative would be worse. Few rich farmers would lend, say, seeds or plows to a poor fellow who could offer no collateral. These people would then simply starve to death. Although the capture of slaves in war or raiding has now become rare, debt slavery does survive in many places. Except it's rarely called slavery anymore. There is now a stigma attached to that word. The rise of that stigma is fascinating and it will play a big part in today's story. Any society dependent on slave labor invents a story which explains why it's all right to possess another human being. These rationalizations all sound insincere to outsiders, and certainly to the modern ear, but as a rule, they will make perfect sense to the people who use them. With very few exceptions, we all like to think of ourselves as good and honorable, slavers not excluded. But what is considered good, that's given to us by culture. Culture answers criteria of who may be treated a certain way, be it by a race, color or creed. Old men that wear ties should be addressed as sir. Kids with lots of acne, on the other hand, are often bullied. And certain people can be taken as slaves. Such laws are not written in stone, they change over time. And these are processes that make history. When church leaders, for instance, banned the enslavement of Christians, this encouraged the demand for non-Christian slaves, which were easy to obtain in Africa. And the New World was depopulated, uh, after the New World was depopulated, I mean, most such slaves would end up in America. The fact that Africans usually have black skin, that gave slave identity a racial component that it didn't otherwise have. This gave rise to new theories why certain races supposedly lacked rationality. When Germany would be reunited, most of the non-white peoples were already colonized, and this frustrated the national, national ambitions of some Germans. So perhaps it's not a coincidence that the Nazis would declare the white-skinned people to their east to be Untermenschen too. They would say that a Slav is just another name for a slave. And so the criteria for enslaving people keep shifting. You might even take this further and say that most of us do this with animals too. 
intelligence or rationality, if you will, is the criterion why we can treat them as slaves or think we can do so, or worse. I'm not passing judgment here. I'm just pointing out that this is culturally determined too. And also to illustrate that we are not totally exempt from this dynamic. We also don't want to imagine that our way of life might be morally wrong. So we choose to believe in a convenient story that tells us that it's just fine. To take myself as an example, I love my pet chickens, but I also eat chicken wings. How can I live with myself then? Well, I was handed a perfect excuse for eating meat by the Dutch comedian Theo Maassen. Ready? Here it is. Look, it's not either we eat these animals or we don't and then they get to live happily ever after. Rather, if people don't eat meat, these animals will never even be born. Because no one is going to feed millions of animals just for fun, obviously. So if you think that these creatures deserve to live, you have a duty to eat them. Now, this is a joke, of course, although badly told this in this case, admittedly. The point is that I'm a hypocrite when it comes to eating meat. But before you vegetarians out there get all triumphant, consider this. Don't you get mad when you hear these reports of children making garments in slave-like conditions? Well, it's almost certain that your closet is full of stuff that comes straight out of such sweatshops. And I don't blame you for how on earth would you get your hands on a wardrobe that you could know for certain was made in humane conditions? Should you feverishly look for information on the production process of every single item that you buy? Should you walk around naked or make your own stuff like Gandhi? Not impossible, not exactly practical either. Well, so too in a slave society, choosing to reject slavery was not at all an easy choice. If you freed your slaves, you had to do all the work yourself. And before you say, well, what's wrong with that? Consider that this was long before all these machines were invented to make things easier for you. And also, such decisions are not made in a vacuum. What if you had to compete on a market, for example? Suppose you had a purling boat in East Arabia. Could you afford to pay your divers honest wages while all your competitors gave them only food and shelter? If in this day and age you have a clothing factory and you decide to pay every worker a decent Belgian wage, I wouldn't be surprised if you went out of business quite soon. Come to think of it, I haven't seen many sewing factories around here lately. Wonder where they might have gone. You might also make another comparison. Try to go about your life without using electricity or fuel. Today, geopolitics is to a large degree about access to oil and gas. But before that, the main power source was human labor. Demand for slaves was as insatiable back then as demand for fossil fuels is now, and it was what made the world go round. Refuse to use electricity for a month and see how people react. I bet most will treat you like a lunatic. Indeed, as if all that impracticality wasn't bad enough, if you refuse to use slaves in a society that depends on them, there is also a very real social cost involved. In America before emancipation, even treating a slave like a human being could get you stigmatized, while conversely, owning lots of slaves was a sign of prestige. Another comparison perhaps to make this one relatable to you, we all know that taking two holidays a year on the other side of the planet is pretty bad for that planet, okay? But people who like to do this often say that if you don't travel, you will be less wise and less complete as a human being somehow. Well, if that's what they're after, they'd better listen to educational podcasts like you guys. 
Now all silliness aside, I think I've made my point. We all have ancestors who practiced slavery, and we are all still subject to the same sort of cultural forces that kept it alive for so long. So there is nothing inherent in Arabia that makes it more prone to slavery. But if this is the case, then why is it that Arabia was among the very last places on earth to abolish slavery? And why is there still such dependence on slave-like labor there? Every culture grants prestige to certain activities while stigmatizing others. This is changeable. Slavery was once respectable in Britain, but not anymore. In capitalist societies, wage labor is held in high regard. But that attitude has never really caught on in Arabia. It's not unusual to find serious literature or respected media arguing matter-of-factly that manual labor is looked down upon by Arabians. One obvious reason is that they have been pampered recently, since the oil economy doesn't require much manual labor. But that alone doesn't explain the whole situation. Norway is also dependent on fuel exports, but over there, attitudes toward wage labor are quite different. That partly has to do with the historical context. Arabia has few sources of wealth other than fossil fuels, and these were not put to use until fairly recently. Before that, there were few means for building social hierarchy. In such situations, people are typically unwilling to accept authority, except temporarily and for defined purposes. This is not controversial. Most basic history manuals point to a link between the arrival of agriculture, the accumulation of wealth that is made possible, and social stratification. In hunter-gatherer societies, there are no kings or bosses. Arabia, though, is mostly composed of desert, which is hardly suitable for farming. Therefore, until fairly recently, nomads were very influential. Now, if there is one upside to this lifestyle, it's being able to move around, instead of toiling away at a farm or a factory. I think this is not really controversial either. To name just one example, the Cambridge World History of Slavery mentions, quote, nomadic social identity and value systems that hold cultivators in contempt, end quote. Note that looking down on wage labor does not equal laziness. There's nothing easy about the life of a desert nomad. It's a matter of pride, rather. It reminds me of the slogan from uh, Game of Thrones, we do not sow. More than one culture has taken pride in that. At some point, it's not crazy to think that this aversion to authority would later extend to working for a boss. Now, if the people of Arabia are historically predisposed to look down on wage labor, then their rulers wouldn't force it on them unless they had to. Most governments have to, for their need for they need their citizens to work and pay income tax. But in Arabia, the income from fossil fuels is such that it made this unnecessary, and employing um, migrants without citizen rights was seen as more convenient. But it's not that the whole of Arabia went straight from nomadism to oil. It's somewhat more complicated than that. Today, we will focus on Oman, a part of Arabia that has, for a time, derived much of its income from cultivation. The actual cultivating, though, was mostly done by slaves. No doubt Oman is the country we most neglected up to this point, but so do most news media. It's the only place on the peninsula which has managed to stay out of the regional power struggles. It has even played an important mediating role, talking to all sides. 
Now, a country that gets along well with most others automatically gets less attention than the likes of Yemen or Saudi Arabia. But there was a time when Oman was not such a humble player. At some point, it colonized a considerable chunk of Africa, and in this way, it has played an outsized part in helping shape the modern world. First consider the location of Oman, on the southeastern tip of the peninsula. This has often been a vital trade route between Africa and the Indian Ocean. The Omanis played a central role in this maritime trade ever since they inherited that part of the Silk Road from the Persians in the early Middle Ages. Back then, some of the articles of trade were already human in kind, by the way. The profitable trade had always attracted Europeans, especially India was seen as a land of endless riches. When Columbus discovered America, he was actually trying to get access to India, hence the name Indians, of course. He couldn't take the more direct eastern route because the Pope had designated that part of the world to Portugal. For the Portuguese, the main problem was that the shortest route to India was controlled by their archenemy, the Muslims. For Christian nations like Spain and Portugal, trying to circumvent them was seen as the logical next step in their war against Islam after the expulsion of the Moors from the Iberian Peninsula. So when the Portuguese managed to sail around South Africa, they were unlikely to make friends with the Muslims that they encountered there. They could not even participate in the local trade, for they had nothing to offer that was in demand over there. The only thing they had that the locals didn't were powerful gunships, and they intended to use them. They demanded protection money from sea traders. Those who refused to pay would be attacked. Quite ironic if you remember that the Gulf Coast would later be called Pirate Coast by Europeans when locals tried to do more or less the same thing that the Portuguese did earlier. To do this, the Portuguese established strongholds all along the coastline, and the major one would be on the island of Hormuz, in the narrow strait between Oman and Persia. However, the small Iberian kingdom lacked the manpower to keep such a huge maritime empire under its control. Soon enough, more powerful seafaring nations like the British and the Dutch would enter the fray, and Portugal had to surrender its outposts one by one. They also antagonized the locals with their brutal behavior. By the middle of the 1600s, they were driven from the Omani coast by the Imam of the interior, who took advantage of their weakening. This unification of coast and center was a momentous event in the history of Oman. It would forever change the nature of the imamate, which henceforth became more attentive to the needs of trading communities on the coast. Soon they managed to emulate the Portuguese techniques for building warships. They could soon put them to use as well, as they received calls for help from other Portuguese colonies who wanted the Omanis to help expel the hated Europeans, and the Omanis obliged. But as often happens in such cases, the helper comes not to liberate, but to take over. The Omanis would capture a large part of the empire of their vanquished enemy. This, by the way, is how colonization usually starts, by invitation, and it's also how it is subsequently legitimized. Oman would soon see the flip side of this coin, however. A struggle erupted over its leadership, and one faction sent word to the Persian general Nadir Shah to plead for help. He came, and the Persians soon took things over. Nadir is one of the most important figures in world history, and we will yet talk about him at length, but in this story, he only plays a minor role. 
After his death, the huge empire he had conquered fell apart again, and so the Persians that remained behind in Oman now had to seek a working relationship with the local Omani leader. To seal the deal, he invited them to a banquet where they would all be slaughtered. This cunning man would found a dynasty that still holds power in Oman today. After his death, the Omanis also retook their colonial possessions in East Africa. But the main reason why they wanted to return there was not so much that they had imperial ambitions. Africa was the source of a commodity that was very much in demand, people. There had always been a lively market for slaves in Asia, but not for the reasons you might expect. Keeping a slave is not necessarily cheap. You have to house them, feed them, guard them. You wouldn't want to keep a slave for doing your household chores if there were plenty of people who wanted to do that for a small wage. According to some theories, it's a matter of supply and demand. If there is a shortage of free labor, like in the depopulated post-Columbian America, you are likely to find many slaves. In Asia, there was usually not a lack of workers. But there are other reasons why some people like to possess another human being, besides profiting from their labor. Some like to have power over life and death, and sexual exploitation was also part of the attraction. This explains why on the slave market of the Indian Ocean, female slaves were often more expensive than men. Another reason why slaves were in demand was that they were perceived to be more trustworthy, since they had no family or tribe that they could be loyal to instead of their boss. In places like the Middle East, with its notoriously strong clan loyalties, that was a big thing. A slave, by contrast, depended solely on his master for his position, so they were often given important political positions, especially eunuchs, who could in theory not start families of their own. Eunuchs were also considered ideal harem guards, because they were believed to have lost all sexual appetite, often wrongly, by the way. Though some castrates might still have sex, they could not produce an heir, and that was important in a world where it was considered normal that officers would be passed down from father to son. By the way, in Europe that was also the case, but you didn't have many eunuchs there, instead you had clerics who were given political power and were forbidden from marrying. Forced celibacy is not in the Bible, but it's easy to see the attraction for a ruler, no? If you appointed a bishop, you could be confident that he wouldn't try to pass on his office to his son. The fact that eunuchs were relied upon for crucial political tasks explains their high price, together with the fact that 9 out of 10 would not survive their castration. The trust that was placed in slave officials proved to be mistaken time and again, however. You will recall the Mamluks of Egypt that we talked about earlier. Well, these were slave soldiers who usurped their former masters, and stunningly, they then continued the practice of training and converting non-Muslim slaves and adopting them into their elite. This shows you, I think, just how ingrained the practice of slavery was in this region. You can imagine that there had always been a considerable demand for slaves there, and since Muslims could not be enslaved, and since capturing Christians became ever harder, an obvious source would be found in Africa. So by capturing a big part of that continent, well, of the coast at least, Oman had hit the jackpot. That was even more true, because precisely at that moment, the character of Indian Ocean slave trade started to change dramatically. Until then, it was different from the Atlantic salt. In the New World, male slaves were more in demand than women, 
because they were mostly put to work on plantations. One historian suggested that, in Asia, slaves were first and foremost items of consumption, whereas in America, they were a means of production, human fuel, if you will. The Portuguese had their own plantations in Brazil, but they couldn't bring slaves all the way from East Africa to Brazil. That would, they would have to sail all around South Africa then, and that was way too expensive and too dangerous. That put a limit on the market for East African slaves. But by the time that the Omani slave empire started to rise, that was about to change, because the French were now setting up plantations in the Indian Ocean. Compared to Brazil, Mauritius was very close by, and this offered a vibrant new market for East African slaves. Historians estimate that before 1700, a mad thousand slaves a year would be exported from East Africa, and mostly to Arabia. But now, their numbers would increase manyfold. As could be expected, their price rose accordingly, and so did profits. Oman was not the only player in town, however. One of the reasons why the Portuguese Empire had crumbled was because of the rise of more powerful seafaring nations. France and Britain would fight over predominance of India and its ocean. The British had formerly been greeted as potential allies by the Omanis. They had invited the East India Company to trade in the hope that the British would help with the expulsion of Portugal. They remained on friendly terms, especially since the British didn't want to antagonize them and drive them into the arms of the French. In this regard, it is interesting to note that the old dynasty of Oman was aligned with a tribal confederation that had a reputation for piracy. The new dynasty, the one that had vanquished the Persians, was connected to a rival group, the likes of Abu Dhabi and Dubai. As we saw in the previous episode, Great Britain would eventually tip the scales in this fight by protecting the latter. But at first, this protection turned out to be rather hollow. Oman's rivals made a pact with Saudi Arabia in its original form, and they seemed to gain the upper hand while the British stood idly by. The Saudis saw a chance to attack Oman after its ruler had refused to convert to Wahhabism. A contender for the throne would accept their creed, and with Saudi aid he gained the upper hand in Muscat. But for that same reason he was not accepted by the Omanis, who feared he might enforce a strange religion and frighten away the Indian trading community. Trade and intolerance rarely mix. It was not the insurgents who saved Oman from Wahhabism, however, nor the British, but the Egyptian army of Mohammed Ali, who we encountered in the previous episode. The Egyptians were sent there by the Ottomans to crush the Wahhabis, which they did. It was then that the so-called pirates of the East Coast were effectively put in their place by the Omanis, the British and their other tribal friends. With British help, the Omanis regained their former African colonies and more. In time, their empire would span the East African coast from Somalia all the way down to Mozambique. The new center of operations became Zanzibar, a smallish island that is now part of Tanzania. This unimpressive place, thousands of miles away from Muscat, soon became the most important slave marker of this part of the world, and the real center of Omani power. Zanzibar was perfectly accessible for slave caravans from the African interior, and its soil was also ideal for planting clove, very sought after at the time. 
The rise of the British had helped Oman becoming rich and powerful like never before, but it would soon become obvious that this alliance was rather problematic. In Europe, public opinion on the topic of slavery was changing. It's fashionable to suspect that this was due to economic considerations. It's often suggested that slavery was no longer lucrative, or that capitalism can only function if people react freely to the pressure of markets unconstrained by force. But the evidence seems to point in another direction. Certain lobby groups thought they had an interest in ending the practice, certainly. But rare was the slave who voluntarily gave up his possessions. So at least for the people who owned slaves, it was still profitable. Also, it's hard to find a nation that was more engaged in the slave trade than Britain when it forbid its citizens to partake in 1807. So it seems that the main reasons for this change of heart were cultural. To examine this in detail would bring us too far off topic. The Quaker movement had some impact, for example, and so did the Enlightenment. Immanuel Kant, for instance, argued that we never should treat other human beings as merely a means to an end. Public opinion in places like Britain was becoming less favorable to slavery, especially as reports about what was happening in Africa were finding their way to Britain. For instance, a group of European explorers encountered a company of Arab slavers. Their slaves each had to carry heavy loads of ivory. An explorer asked the slavers what would happen if the slaves couldn't go on. The answer was that that person would immediately be stabbed to death so as not to encourage the others to fake exhaustion. The explorers then noticed that the mothers had been carrying both their children and the ivory. What if they collapsed under the weight? Well, the reply was that self-evidently the baby would be stabbed so as to relieve the mother of her less important burden. I guess this one example can stand in for countless others to remind us that slavery is as bad as it gets, of course. Reading the actual accounts, you can't help but ask yourself, how can anyone be so cold-hearted? To what degree does growing up in a certain culture absolve you of guilt? In cases like this, we are tempted to say very little. But then again, our own culture will one day be seen as barbaric, because this has been the fate of all cultures that have ever existed. We don't keep slaves anymore, granted, but we do other stuff that I can easily imagine our great-grandchildren finding despicable one day. How much slack, then, should we cut ourselves, just because everyone else is doing it? It's interesting to wonder about, and humbling. Anyway, it's telling that many people in Britain who were reading about this stuff at the time were also upset about it. The mood was changing. Now, up to this point, the British Empire hasn't been getting a lot of good press from this podcast. But I have nothing against the UK. In fact, if, hopefully, everyone listening to this podcast feels that slavery is awful, we owe that in large part to British imperialism. Since the late 18th century, spurred on by Enlightenment thinkers, Quakers and whatnot, public opinion in Europe became more hostile towards slavery. Due to its primacy in the 19th century, Britain would lead the fight against the practice, starting in its own empire. Then other nations would follow suit, often under British pressure. But at first, they treaded carefully. They knew that, especially in Arabia, doing away with slavery would be very unpopular indeed. As long as France was a dangerous rival in the Indian Ocean, they were careful not to antagonize their local allies. What concerned them most at first 
was preventing slaves from entering British India and depriving French plantations of vital workers. So when they first made an agreement with the ruler of Oman, other parts of the trade were left uncovered. But that would not last. A few decades into the 19th century, Britain had no more rivals in the region, and they didn't care as much anymore what their minor allies thought. Now consider this. In America, as you will know, it took until the middle of the 19th century for slaves to be freed. And many people there, especially in the south of course, were so mad about this that they even wanted to go to war over it. With their own countrymen, that is. Again, that was in the middle of the 19th century. Now consider how divisive this issue still is in America today. The Civil Rights Act only came into force a hundred years after the Civil War. But even then, there were still cattle slaves in Arabia. Don't you think that might have an impact today? Especially since unlike in France or Britain or even the US, abolition when it finally came was not achieved under local pressure. To the contrary, the rulers were strong-armed into abandoning it by outside powers, and they rightly feared that their people would rise up in revolt because of it. When uh, Sultan Said was told to forbid human traffic and permit British warships to search Omani ships found with slaves on board, he is supposed to have compared this to the orders of Azrael, the angel of death. That tells you something right there about his enthusiasm. So it should be no surprise that he didn't go to great lengths to enforce the prohibition, but nor did the British. This would be easier said than done. The Indian Ocean is quite a big pond to patrol after all. The only people who might have been capable of effective enforcement were local officials, and they were often the very people who had the biggest stakes in the business. The British started to lose their patience as they witnessed that the flow of human trafficking towards Arabia continued unabated. From there, the slaves were often sent further north to Persian and Ottoman lands. The British managed to pressure both the Sultan and the Shah to close their slave markets. On top of that, the fact that the Ottoman Caliph agreed to this undermined the returning argument that, was, that there was somehow uh, a divine sanction for slavery that could not be tampered with. Still, the Hijaz province in Arabia was exempted from the prohibition with a telling argument that it might lead to revolt. The Omani slaving business was dealt a severe blow from another angle as well. The British became more demanding of the ruler, Said, as he became more dependent on them. He was somehow convinced to send a letter to the British Foreign Secretary, in which he declared that one of his sons should inherit his African possessions, while another would rule in Muscat. Now, the British must have been pleased with this spontaneous letter, it gave them the near certainty of a succession crisis, as well as an excuse to interfere when it arrived. The heir to the African colonies died before his father, after which another of his sons claimed the southern part of the empire with support from Great Britain. The old sultan would live to witness how the inevitable battle over his own succession ripped his country apart. He died while sailing for Zanzibar in a hurry. The British forced the rival princes to accept that they would each rule only one part of their father's empire. Consider what had happened there. This is the equivalent of stoking division inside someone's household so as to buy their house on the cheap after the divorce. The ruler of Muscat reckoned he might have one more chance to retake Zanzibar 
when the British were occupied by the Great Mutiny in India, as well as with the Second Opium War in China. Yet his whole fleet was forced back by a single British battleship. Now this is almost like a metaphor for how unequal the power of the two partners had become by that time. Both Omani rulers had to acknowledge that any further disputes about reunification would have to be settled through British arbitration. Now, in spite of the political rupture, the network between Oman and Zanzibar remained. In Arabia, the demand for slaves remained undimmed, and as we know from the history of prohibition in the US, or drugs more broadly, as long as there is a strong demand for illegal goods, smugglers will find a way to satisfy that. So the trade shifted overland. More importantly though, slavery as such was allowed to continue in Africa as well. As a result of the shrinking overseas market, more slaves were available there, causing their prices to drop. As a consequence, it became more lucrative to put them to work on the spot. So the slave traders kept their wares for themselves and set up their own plantations. Few European abolitionists had a problem with that. On the contrary, they encouraged trade in illegitimate goods, even though these were invariably produced by slave labor. As a consequence of the end of the slave trade, it is estimated that the number of slaves in Zanzibar increased sevenfold. Slavers ventured ever deeper into the African interior. Once captured, their victims were forced to march on foot to the coast, while carrying elephant teeth and the like. On arrival in Zanzibar, they were put to work on clove plantations. So the attitude of free traders at this time seems hypocritical at best. But before we judge them too harshly, let's note that there are certain similarities with the current attitude in the Western world toward workers' rights. These rights are wholly within the borders of our own country. Everyone gets minimum wage, child labor is forbidden, safety standards are in place, all that. But this adds to the cost of labor and capital is induced to move where this cost is lowest, and that is usually where such niceties don't apply, and everybody can wash their hands in innocence. Now, few people are applauding this, I suppose. I think it's safe to say that the 19th century liberals didn't have bad intentions either. The road to hell is often paved with the best intentions. But does that mean that people should be judged on intent or on results? That's a tough one, I think. Eventually, the penny dropped. Remember I told you about the explorers who encountered this group of slaves carrying ivory? And the Arab slaver helpfully explaining why they had to kill a baby once in a while? Well, these Europeans were as shocked as you would be. They went home and made it their life's work to spread the word about the need to end this foul trade. The public was aghast too, and to its credit, put pressure on politicians to take action. Sadly, this action would once again have ironic consequences, and not in a funny way. It was decided that diplomatic efforts weren't gonna cut it. The so-called civilized nations would have to take matters into their own hands, wipe out the evil of slavery. Only by controlling Africa on the ground, the supply of slaves could be stopped at the source. The population had to be civilized and instructed in the compassionate Christian faith so that they would voluntarily abstain from such barbaric practices in future. The noble self-appointed task of ending slavery became a pretext for imperialism. Zanzibar would not be exempt from this. It had done relatively well after being separated from Oman, 
but its luck eventually ran out. It had specialized in one crop, clove. This was extremely pricey at first, but as every investor should know, it's never smart to put all your eggs in one basket. The boom inevitably turned to bust at some point. Many owners had to sell their lands then to Indian merchants. And as India was British, so were they, in a way. British influence on Zanzibar became ever stronger, to the detriment of Omanis. By 1890, Zanzibar became a British protectorate. And still, the slavers would not give up so easily. The demand for human labor was still strong in Arabia. As colonial powers took over the African coast, the slavers simply moved towards the interior. There, ever more wars were started for the sole purpose of grabbing human spoils to sell. Arab traders provided their local partners with firearms. As payment for the muskets, they had to use them for raids on their next-door villages, then hand over the population. In regions with little political authority, slavers couldn't find partners, so they took matters into their own hands. In the east of the Congo, an Arab slaver nicknamed Tipu Tip controlled a huge territory until the Belgian king Leopold II took over. Indeed, the colonizers eventually caught up with the slavers. By moving inland, the latter had handed the Europeans an excuse to complete the scramble for Africa. Worse, once they themselves were in charge, they were careful not to stoke distress by banning slavery outright. They too feared the wrath of the elite who profited from it. This, you might say, was a recognition of sorts of the risky position in which they had earlier placed the Omani Sultan. Racist stereotypes about Africans needing civilization and all that would also be unhelpful. This led to the fear that, once unshackled, Africans would prove too lazy and unruly, so that the economy and social order would collapse. Ten years after emancipation, little more than 10% had won their freedom. And if anyone would be compensated in that event, it was the master, not the slave. Now, unlike Zanzibar, Oman never became a formal protectorate, but that didn't mean it could do as it pleased. Its finances were getting worse quickly. Trade had forever been its lifeblood, but as steamships proliferated and the Suez Canal opened, fewer and fewer ships passed by its ports, and the Indian Ocean was almost becoming a British lake. British Aden was ideally placed to profit from all these developments, becoming very rich. In 1863, Oman's last remaining ship was sold off to fill the empty treasury. Things kept going downhill for the rest of the century, since Zanzibar kept its importance for a while, and there was a strong Omani network still in place, the island became a magnet for Omani migrants. This process would go in reverse only after oil exploitation in Oman began in earnest. Then, for a time, Oman was one of these rarest of countries, which has a huge influx of foreign workers, while a huge proportion of inhabitants found work outside the borders. In Oman, Schoolbooks proudly remember the days when Omanis had rescued East Africa from Portuguese oppression and how they had brought civilization and prosperity. The Zanzibaris begged to differ. Merely a month after independence, tens of thousands of Arabs were killed or detained and those who remained were driven out of the country. I guess that tells you something right there about how, how popular the Omanis actually were. Now, many of these refugees had a huge amount of valuable know-how. 
Yet the isolationist Sultan Said bin Taimur would not let them in. So they migrated elsewhere, for the time being. His son Kabus did the complete opposite. He encouraged all his countrymen in foreign lands to come help the country regain its former glory. These people, and especially the former Zanzibaris, would indeed contribute to the subsequent revival of Oman, and the fact that many of them had never set foot there meant that they had no tribal network that could rival their loyalty to the Sultanate. This made them trustworthy, not unlike the slave officials of yore, one might say. Until then, slaves kept coming to Arabia. It's a big world out there, and there will never be a lack of vulnerable people. For instance, there are reports of pilgrims who were sold off on arrival in Mecca. Even when slavery itself was abolished, that didn't end it overnight. In Oman, banning it was one of the first acts of Sultan Qaboos. It was probably a reason for the British to support his coup. They had in vain tried to convince his now-deposed father to do this. In Said's palace, reportedly, Hundreds of slaves were found who had become mute since they were forbidden to speak. It was a reminder that the practice had not become any more humane over the centuries. Elsewhere in Arabia, emancipation also had to wait until around 1970, with a few exceptions like Bahrain and Qatar, where there had not been as many slaves to begin with. What eventually made ab abolition feasible, though, was probably that demand for dates and pearls and the like had seriously decreased by then. So the slaves were often not worth their cost in the eyes of their masters anymore. In other words, in this case, it seems like economic reasons were more important than cultural shifts. Until then, although it had become clear that the continuation of the practice gave the Gulf a bad name, the only effect of that, if any, was that the practice would move indoors. Yet it was hardly a secret. In the 30s, the Saudis were still appointing officials to oversee laws regulating slavery. The opinion of foreigners was not considered all that important at the time. But when many former colonies started to gain their freedom, this changed the situation. Arabian countries understood that the issue would be very sensitive in these new countries. And then there was the Arab Cold War, with Nasser and his allies crying for a third block of basically the downtrodden nations of the world. The Nasserite rebels who overthrew the Yemeni Imam abolished slavery right away. It was probably no coincidence that right after that, Saudi Arabia announced that emancipation was underway. But once again, it would be the masters who were compensated. The former slave, with no possessions and no one to turn to, often had no choice but to continue working for his former master, often on terms that were little better than before. For instance, in many places on the East Coast, pearl fishing was the only viable economic activity. So where was a pearl diver to go once freed? Often, he stayed on with his former master, now officially as an adopted member of his family. In isolated mountain villages of North Yemen, the country's leaders had little power nor interest in telling the sheikhs how to regulate matters. And the sheikh was often the biggest slaveholder in town, so you can imagine how well that went. Even in South Yemen, whose communist creed should theoretically not sit well with slavery, the practice continued for years. Time and time again, it became plain that declaring something illegal, that's not the same as ending it. 
especially if the declaration is made for the sake of appearances. Finally, right after abolition, came the oil crisis and the huge leap in prosperity that followed. This made it unnecessary to put locals to work, and it gave them the means to pay foreigners to do domestic chores and other work they didn't want to do themselves or had no experience of doing, like building roads. This brings me back to the basic question of how relevant this whole story remains today. To what extent is the dependence on exploited laborers a residue from the time of slavery? In most analysis of labor mentality, the blame is understandably put on things like the oil industry and the dominance of the ulama in education. But I think today's episode has shown that, as Jeremy Jones puts it, the Arab Gulf states were rentier states long before oil. The only time in its history when at least part of the peninsula derived its riches mainly from productive labor, the actual work was done by slaves. Now, I think we've also shown that this attitude can change. After all, in the 1840s, the Omani traders put aside their disdain for farming as they came to understand that the golden age of slave trading was over. Like Yemen, which is an outlier in this regard, Oman would provide workers for the industry of richer Gulf countries until its own oil exploitation picked up in earnest. After that, the dynamic was reversed gradually. Oman started to look less like Yemen and more like the UAE. So attitudes can change if they have to, and as things stand, it looks like they'll indeed have to. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, consider posting a rating or review on podcast sites. It costs you nothing and helps the show grow. Next time, we'll discuss the origins of the particular Islamic sects we find in Arabia. I hope to see you then. Take care. Hello, my name's Elliot and I run the Anthology of Heroes podcast. Each episode of the show follows the life of a hero from one country of the world, but rather than the stuffy old politicians or tired stories you read about in school, I'll be sharing the forgotten stories of rebels, slaves, heretics, and outcasts, men and women who went against the tide of history regardless of the consequences. If this sounds like your kind of thing, check us out on Instagram and of course all major podcasting platforms. The name again is Anthology of Heroes Podcast and we hope to see you there.